Hello, and welcome to the Coral Project's No Bataille Needed podcast. I'm Wilson Alexander Aguilar, the executive producer of the podcast and the Coral Project's marketing director. In this episode, our executive audio engineer and sometimes host, Chris Wilmore, chats with the Coral Project's first executive director, Robin Dahlberg, and the Coral Project's artistic director, Daniel. Let's take a listen. I'm excited to take the reins as the host for this episode, chatting with the two of you. So let's start at the beginning. Daniel, you're of course credited as founding the Coral Project in 1996. But Robin, you were there in the early days too, as the first executive director from 1997 to 2005. So how did you both meet? We met uh, through my first husband, Ryan. Ryan and Dan used to, if I recall correctly, they used to commute together to San Jose State long, long ago. And I think it went from there. We may have sung in Coraliers together. It feels so long ago. I'm having trouble remembering. It was definitely something along those lines. What do you got, Daniel? I, uh, so I met you for the first time the year that the choir went to Glenglochlin, Wales, and you were a student at RISD, but were with, we were still dating Ryan, and you came on as a guest singer and joined us at the end of the spring semester. So it was that little window of time before the trip, which ironically, I actually ended up not going on, but <laughs> which is a whole other sad thing. But um, that we met at that time, and I was massively impressed with you. You just were totally off book on all of this incredibly difficult repertoire. And then you had this really great kind of vibe to you that, you know, it's it that is still there. I mean, you just have this sort of like always on the forefront of what's happening artistically and your intelligence and just this very Zen energy that you radiate. I was I was captivated by all of it. Like, wow, <laughs> my gosh. You're very kind. That that was my epic 40 pieces memorized in about two weeks. <laughs> so it sounds like you hit it off pretty quick. Daniel, when you started the choir in 96, uh, was Robin a part of it from the get-go or did she end up joining later? She was absolutely a part of it at the get-go. And she was the executive director in 96. We Initially, when we formed it, Robin had another position on the board of directors and a fellow named Robert Smith, who I also knew from San Jose State and a terrific oboist, was the president, the executive director. But it was maybe two weeks into the birth of the ensemble and he needed to move and he moved to Virginia, I believe. He moved back east. So that's when Robin stepped up. So even Robin started right at the beginning and then just for a couple of weeks, she wasn't in charge and then she stepped up and then because of her, we were really able to take off and do some really amazing things. Could you elaborate? Elaborate on the amazing things? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the amazing things. Like... <laughs> <laughs> what was it like working together when it was starting out? Uh, I never found uh, of all the of all the people I've ever worked with, Robin is near, if not at the top of the list, for a person that's incredibly easy to work with. Um, she is calm. I can be a little bit <clears throat> anxious about what it is that I I want to envision, and she was always great for helping me realize and and have clarity on repertoire or programming or concepts or managing an unruly 
individual and her skill set is broad so not just you know business acumen but she also has this wonderful I'm totally talking for you Robin she has this <laughs> wonderful <do> degree <laughs> from the Rhode Island School of Design in jewelry design but the her of course you get a degree in design and you, your artistic outlook can it can be a wide lens even though she specifically got a degree in jewelry so she helped with things like designing our logo um, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, but and helping with creative concepts, and I would bounce off of her. Okay, how does this set sound, or these flow of pieces? And I just felt like I was always in the right rhythm with her. Now, Robin, had you served in any sort of like administrative role of this sort before? Um, I'd certainly done admin work before, um, you know, as a job. But uh, like Dan said, going to RISD certainly informs everything that I do. Um, creative problem solving is super fun. So it's not just trying to get to the end of the line or trying to figure out, you know, the product, but it's doing so creatively in a way that makes the process fun and makes the end result fun as well. And I think people really see that when you're putting something together, they can tell the difference if it was like just slogging through mud or was it a fun process and they can see that in the end results well what challenges do you think you faced when the choir was first starting out that is a good question i was really fortunate at the time to not be working a whole lot so the choral project was my life (laughs) for about 10 years and happily so it was uh, definitely a joy to do this kind of work because i could throw myself into it and i wore lots of hats like dan said um taking on different roles, both administrative and I think I was section leader for a while. I was an alto for a while. I was a soprano for a while. Uh, I would just do whatever needed to be done because I like that kind of work. Uh, As far as challenges, I think a lot of it was in the very beginning having these huge visions and we weren't established enough at that time to really commandeer the income to make the vision happen. So sometimes, you know, when you get really ambitious about things like, why isn't it happening yet? (laughs) Yeah. So it's a matter of like uh, tempering your expectations. Yeah. There's a great phrase that I think it was in, it was in some movie and it's like Florence Nightingale. I don't remember, but the phrase, and I've loved this phrase ever since I've heard it, which is the tyranny of ambition. (laughs) Like I must do all these things. And then you get kind of um, overtaken by this desire to do all the things. But I think, I think we did well. We had a a great team as a board. I remember just our board meetings were always so smooth. You hear all these horror stories about people going off topic and board meetings going on too long and people not getting along with each other. And we just had such a good, strong board that it continued to make the work fun. And I want to add to that because the board had such good chemistry and Robin was such a good leader and because of Robin's interesting way of her viewpoint, we were able to do things. We, we didn't, we didn't follow a manual of best practices. We sort of figured out this is what works for the Coral Project. And it was much later as we looked back and started comparing ourselves to other boards that we realized, oh, we actually did follow best practices, but we sort of charted that course in a a very particular way that was very Coral Project. Even the handbook that we used to create policies and procedures for the ensemble, Robin 
entitled The Path. And it had this very <laughs> kind of zen-like thing to it. But it, it made everything very approachable and every, everything very doable. It never felt laborious. It never felt pedantic. That's great. So this year, the Coral Project is celebrating its 25th anniversary, which is a little mind-boggling to me, but, you know, it's, it's, it's great. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to have been a part of it. Thinking back to when it all started, do you remember what the, the arts and culture and choral scene was like in the Bay Area around then, like in the late 90s? That's a good question. It feels so long ago. <laughs> I don't, I'm, I've always been a real DIY, do things my way kind of thing. Not like my way or the highway, but I don't, and this is, this is not good for like market research, but I don't, I don't tend to look at what else is out there. I tend to go, this is what I want to do. And here we go. And the same is true of, of my artwork, my jewelry work. I don't spend a lot of time looking at other artists. I don't necessarily want the influence. I want to feel like I'm original. And that is a big part of how I approach things is I want to be original in the approach. So I wasn't really totally dialed into what was happening around. It was just like, okay, Dan has this vision. How do we make this happen? I'm not really worried about anybody else on the scene. <laughs> I mean, they say that comparison is the thief of joy. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's another good quote. Yeah. So what did you feel? And maybe this will have the same answer, but um, what did you feel set the Coral Project apart from other choral groups at the time? I think we were trying to add in more of a multimedia experience. And again, it it didn't pan out immediately because it took a while to kind of develop the timing of it and the budget for it. But the the idea was to not just perform music, but to make it a more immersive experience with uh, visuals or dance, um, bringing in additional elements to make it a, a deeper experience. And that was always the goal from the beginning was to do that. And, and it was realized more successfully sometimes than other times. And other times it's, it's enough to be musical. Are you saying the early shows you would have like uh, projections in the concert hall and that sort of thing? The very, very first show we did, we had uh, readings in between. Uh, it was original, wasn't it, Daniel? Yeah, so it was original. Uh, Dan does a lot of really wonderful writing. So that would be uh, either read aloud or sometimes just in the program, kind of having this theme, this really rich theme for each concert that Dan would link with some original writing uh, in between to just make it feel more cohesive and not just like, here's a bunch of songs that we like, but here's an idea, here's a flavor, here's a theme. Uh, eventually we did, we added some dance in at one point, uh, and that was that was really neat um, to be able to work with other artists in different medium and share that experience with them was really fun. I don't know that we got too much into projections. I think it was on the list. <laughs> it, it was definitely on the list. It, it, but you know, cost held us back because we, you start pulling in people, then there's somebody who has to design it, and somebody has to run it, and then you have to rent a space that actually can project it, and and it's always as as it always is in the creative thing. It's money that can sometimes hold you back. The other thing that was interesting about what when we were forming the group, what we wanted to do was, and I think I've said this before, it is that. It was very purposeful singing in terms of we wanted to express something and 
sort of help change hearts through singing is create community through that to let everybody feel linked by this common experience rather than what classical music can so often do is create a situation where you see somebody really good performing and you watch them and it can be wonderful and inspiring because they're so good at it but it can also feel like there's a lot of distance between you and the performer and we wanted to do something where we felt like the audience was in a way singing inside while we're singing I see. You want to be reachable so you, you can reach them in turn. Right. In 2001, zooming forward a little bit, the Choral Project participated in its first international tour. Both of you shared a lot of the planning responsibilities for the trip. Can the two of you talk about how that tour went a little bit? Like, uh, how did the planning go? Um, just what was the whole process like? That was the UK, wasn't it? No, that was Mexico and Costa Rica. That was the first one. Yeah. Oh, what a great trip that was. <laughs> um, <laughs> with a lot of uh, choir trips, a lot of the planning is handed over to a company called ACFEA. This is a pro company that they specialize in tours for performing arts ensembles. And so they would handle most of the nitty gritty um, and they would get a sense of what are what are we looking for in a tour um, you know, where do we want to go? And they, they would have kind of boilerplate that they could start with and then they'd go from there. And I had never been to Mexico and Costa Rica, so that was a real treat. Although it was interesting landing in Mexico City and going, gosh, this feels a lot like San Jose. <laughs> um, so I don't recall a great deal of planning on our end. Mostly it was about fundraising. As, as usual. Um, so they can do all the planning, but we still have to come up with the funds. And it was interesting doing that as an adult community-based choir, which is a different feeling than doing it in a college-based group, which we had both done before. Um, you know, people like, oh, send the kids across the seas. It'll be a great learning experience. And we're just like adults, like we just want to go. <laughs> but we made it happen because we have you know, a really good network of people and and also people working full time who can who can pave their own way. So what was the tour itself like? I mean, what was it like singing for for the folks in Mexico and Costa Rica? They were fantastic. The only drawback, so we only did two concerts in Costa Rica. We did one at, we were, it was a two-week tour. So we were basically a week in Mexico and then a week in Costa Rica. And we did a concert early on in the week in Costa Rica in San Jose at a theater with uh, a really well-respected choir from Costa Rica called El Café Coral. And it was, a, it was a wonderful concert. It was a little surreal because Costa Rica was in the World Cup and they won. <laughs> and so in the middle of, you know, some sort of moving piece that you can hear the town outside just going just crazy and, and horns. <laughs> but everyone in the audience knew exactly what was going on. So it was, you know, like, oh, yeah, yeah, just keep going. It's all right. Um <clears throat> And then, and then for the rest of that week, we uh, went up to one of my favorite locations I've still ever been in my life, a place called Tabacon, which is a, a spa resort near um, Monte Arenal. Um, it's a, a volcano, so the the all the springs are fed from the hot, you know, that comes out of the the volcano, and you're in the cloud forest. 
And you look up and look, there are two cans flying around and, oh, look, there's a spider monkey swinging from branch to branch. And you're checking yourself going, I am not in a wildlife preserve. I'm not at a zoo. This, these are actually real wild animals. It was just breathtaking and fantastic. And then we went to another resort on the coast, which was beautiful, but unbelievably humid. And then we went back to San Jose and we did a concert in the cathedral which was a terrific concert, amazing space, a little sad because the cathedral didn't do anything to publicize the concert. So I think we had like nine people in the house. We got a really great, really great recordings, though, um, that we were able to use from the tour. Mexico, we did a lot of concerts in Mexico that all had really fantastic crowds. The challenge in Mexico is that all of the concert venues are like right on the street corners and they don't have like real sidewalks. And apparently, at that time in Mexico, nobody owned a muffler. So it was a lot of (laughs) going down the road. And of course, we were trying to do like a really great tour CD, too. So many of the many of the takes and all the concerts were like, ah, but the audiences were unbelievably appreciative. And we got to sing in some beautiful spaces and and the people in both Mexico and Costa Rica were just, just wonderful. It was so much love. It was so effusive. Um, it was a really great first tour to do. I didn't remember the mufflers at all. That's really funny. I do remember there was one church that was absolutely packed. People were just jammed and there were like people right in front of us as we're singing. And it was it was a little surreal. <laughs> like really right in front of us. Yeah, like, like as right far there. as my, my computer <laughs> is for me. So, yeah. And we had this we had this one amazing experience that I have to share Um uh, we did a walking tour in Oaxaca, which is a, a phenomenal, phenomenal city. That's where um, the artist who invented the alebrije was, you know, born. So the Oaxacanian, the figures, the little alebrijes are all over the place. The colorful animals. Yeah. And we're, um, we're doing this walking tour and there's this cathedral, um, Santo Domingo. It looks It looked kind of like Mission Santa Barbara on the outside. And when you walked in, the ceiling was gilded with what looked like vines, but the vines were a family tree of sorts that started with Christ and then populated out. And it was all all the medallions on the family tree were all different priests that had served over time in the area. And the acoustic in there was unbelievable. We had wanted to do a concert there, but the Monsignor the place was too sacred for him and he wouldn't let groups perform there. So we did our concert somewhere else. But because we're on a walking tour, we just sang. So we did one verse of the Bible Ave Maria <laughs> and it was probably one of the best performances of that piece ever. It was, it was spectacular. You know, when you walk into a room in a, a performance space, I that I I tend to measure performance spaces now against that because it was so good. It was so good. Yeah. 
So do you two feel that you came back from the trip with a uh, um, newfound energy for the choir? Or like, how, how did the trip, you know, affect you moving forward? I want to go to more spas. <laughs> I think we, I think we all want to go back to Tabacon. <laughs> that was, you know, best choir tour ever. Sing, sing a lot for one week and then sing and then spa for a week and then sing. Sounds ideal. <laughs> it, it, it was ideal. I need to find a way to put some spa... <laughs> spa time into my next tour for sure right so the choral project has been on a couple of tours since then um none that i've been on unfortunately but um have you thought about the choral project maybe going on a mini tour sometime in the next next few years a mini tour like just to anywhere oh yeah well like, like outside the bay area you know yeah uh, absolutely we and and we did we've done a couple of those like we did one several years ago where we went through the central coast down to southern california something sort of local and it would be fun to do another one of those again but of course i'd also love to travel internationally when the the covid sort of stabilizes but um i do miss performing in general so right now it's like when you're really hungry and everything looks really good like i could eat that you know, display in the grocery store. I'm so hungry. So performing and traveling, I'm ravenous for it right now. So everything sounds good to me. I hear that. So I want to rewind a little bit. Uh, Robin, looking back at your time with the Coral Project, is there anything you wish you had the opportunity to do that never came to fruition or maybe you thought about only after you left? Not off the top of my head. It's been a while. Uh, I left in 2006. So that was some time ago. But I don't remember feeling anything was left behind or still to do. I mean, there was always the drive to have more involved performances and try to up the game in terms of when people come to a concert, what are they experiencing? So there's always, you know, the creative challenge of doing more with that. But I don't think there was anything that was not that we did a lot of cool stuff. And I don't remember that anything in particular. No. Well, that's good. No regrets. <laughs> it's a good motto for life. <laughs> um, I was wondering if we could talk about the logo for a minute. Wilson was kind enough to send me the um, the first version of the logo for the Coral Project. It's this nice calligraphic, the Coral Project, with the um, you know blue-green ellipse going on. Could you talk about the process behind designing that? Sure. Uh, the ellipse is, of course, a music note, because the music note is that really particular kind of oval shape and proportion. Blue-green, I think probably just because I'm a sucker for blue-green. And I still remember the font, Dauphin. <laughs> uh, very popular. I think, Dan, I think you picked that one out. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And we were the San Jose Coral Project initially because we... And we kind of debated it a little bit, but I think the idea at the time was that we might be able to garner some funding if we were attached to the city itself. And that would, that would present us differently if we were particular to a city and then eventually evolve to be more uh, global. Um, and it's, you know, as a creative person, sometimes we'll, people will ask, where do you get your ideas from? And I don't really question where they come from. If they're knocking at the door and they're willing to work, that's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> and is that blue-green the same reason that we have the, the ties that we do today? Was that sort of a choice of the color scheme for the whole group? The bluish color has, uh, somewhere in that blue field, has, has been the official color for the Coral Project. Um, some, some version of it. I've heard in, in color theory world that blue is a comforting color and also makes you want to buy things like Best Buy is blue. And then 
you'll notice that fast food restaurants are, are red and yellow because those are colors that make you hungry. <laughs> so blue is, you know, blue is a comforting color for me. Blue is an easy sell for most people. <laughs> uh, when you two started the Coral Project, did you envision any goals or objectives that you're most proud of achieving together? Maybe that that 2006 concert, that last one that I did, One is the All, that was, I think, where we had been heading that whole time was this concert where we had choreography. So we had different positions and movements for each song. We had dancers too, yeah? <laughs> we had three. Yeah, we had dancers. We had lighting. It was a full stage production. So classic choral, pro- uh, choral concerts in general are frequently in churches because awesome acoustics. But we had this full experience at the California Theater on stage with lighting. It was a whole production. And I think that was the goal all along and to be able to get there was pretty special. Well, it sounds like a realization of that sort of multimedia presentation that you were going for from the get-go. Yeah. For sure. So Robin, is there a concert or song uh, that has a special meaning for you or that you instantly think of when you think about the Coral Project? Mm, Probably In Pace. (laughs) Such a glorious song to sing. favorite i've sung i don't remember how many different parts on that piece but first soprano was always the favorite because i could just float just hang out in the ether and if i remember to count that's really a good too (laughs) (laughs) there's a thing that happens uh, and other sopranos can back me up on this you get your head starts vibrating a certain way above certain notes and then you just forget about other stuff like counting (laughs) it's my story and i'm sticking to it no, I'm pretty, I'm pretty okay at counting, but uh, yeah, In Pace was always, I like digging into work, digging into songs, and that one was a fun one to really fine tune and get into the tuning and get into the sound, and just what a piece that is, just the way it starts and grows, and that one's just a beautiful piece. Who composed that one? Rene Claussen. Oh, no kidding. And to this day, I think it's actually his best choral work. Is there any particular show that you remember fondly? I imagine that 2006 one would rank highly. The 2006 one was good. It was also a lot of work, um, a lot of rehearsals and stage rehearsals. And for people who haven't necessarily had that practice of doing that kind of work before, and so it was a little bit extra work in some ways. Honestly, the first concert was special also because it, we we spent a whole year putting this concert together and it was this whole like cycle of life theme and really, like Dan said, singing with purpose, having a real story to tell with this and and working with all these people at the very beginning of something that we all felt was really special. I want to talk a little bit about your life uh, after the Coral Project, Robin. How much time do you have? <laughs> oh, uh, quite a bit. We can, we can keep going. <laughs> right. So you're a co-owner of a martial arts studio in San Jose. Is that right? Yes. And you're a fourth degree black belt? Yes. So how do you get there from helping found a a choir? Uh, Feel free to laugh. This is the story of my beginning of martial arts. I saw the matrix and I said, I want to be able to do that. 
And then I went to the Yellow Pages, because that's what you did back then. And I found a Kung Fu studio, because in my mind, Kung Fu was the oldest. Um, and in, in some circles, it is the oldest. But who, who really knows what the oldest martial art is? If you study Kalari, they will tell you it's the oldest. It's an Indian-based one. Anyway, so I joined up with this school in San Jose. It's no longer there. And I don't really do anything halfway, so I just jumped in with both feet. And the way you get to fourth black is you keep showing up. You keep showing up and something that if on the off chance any of my students are listening, you got to practice outside of class. (laughs) If you just rely on classes to get you there, it will only get you so far. At a certain level, there's only so much that can be covered in class. You got to take ownership of what you're working on. And, and keep at it. And then I met my now husband at that school. And there were some things that were changing at the school. There were some politics that were happening. And it got to be, it was no longer the place for me after a while. I wasn't really growing anymore. There had been some changes there. And I was done with that chapter. And so uh, Charles and I would go train in the park and we had some people from that school who would come train with us because they liked working with us. And we had both been teaching at that school unofficially because they were very particular about who taught. But then we're like, well, okay, people like working with us. Let's do a school because Charles doesn't do anything halfway either. So (laughs) we've had this school for about 11 years now, I think. 11, 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what style of uh, martial arts did you say they you, you teach there? It's Kung Fu. It's nominally Shaolin Kung Fu, but it's hard to say what that is. Uh, Charles brings with him some Okinawan arts as well. He's been a martial artist for fi- almost 50 years. So all but, okay, he's not that old yet. All but six years of his life, though. He started when he was a child, and he's been a martial artist and studied in several different styles. I've only studied in the one style. We are definitely yin and yang. Um, He is excellent with things like how to apply things. He's done like tournaments and stuff in his past, so he knows about practical application really well. Um, He knows about strength training, and he relies on me for things like flexibility and flow and um, just having a different interpretation of things. So it's a good pair. Sometimes the students get uh, a little, not quite frustrated, but will... They feel like we're telling them two different things because it's coming from two different people. And Charles and I know that we're telling them the same thing. It just sounds different to them. (laughs) What common ground have you found between martial arts and and music? There's rhythm. There's flow. There's technique. The pauses are just important as the sound. (laughs) And the breath, the breath, the chi. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I have one funny anecdote I have to share about music and martial arts. When we went to Mexico and Costa Rica, the week before we went, I had a really bad dream that the bus had gotten pulled over by some guerrillas in in Mexico, some, some not-so-nice people, and they were holding us all at gunpoint, and Robin kicked, <laughs> kicked their asses <laughs> in my dream. She, like, just completely... It was like a total action movie. Um, so then I, I woke up and I'm like, we're going to be okay. <laughs> it's good to have a bodyguard in the choir. Yeah. Right. So are you, you clearly also sing, you know, you sang with the choir. Are you still um, performing now? Like, are you, how are you active musically? 
I am not as active as I would like to be, that's for sure. But I do have a trio that I play with from time to time. It's Juanita Harris on vocals and violin, Galt Johnson on piano and vocals, and I play cello and sing. And it just started because I wanted to do something fun and musical. And I thought, you know, I really love chamber music. I grew up playing chamber music and I wanted to get back into it. I thought, wouldn't this be fun? And Juanita and I, that's how we met um, our mother's we're best friends and said, oh, come play at church. You know how that is. <laughs> and so we, we played a little duet. Uh, it was uh, Ave Verum Corpus by Mozart. And that's how we became friends. We did music camp together. So we, we have a long musical history together. And I knew that Galt played piano and we're good friends. So we just got together and started messing around and, and finding some old trio books and seeing what's in there. Um, we've tackled... We have a, a Dvorak trio. I think it's an E flat minor. Beautiful piece. Man, is it hard. Freaking it's Dvorak, a, man. <laughs> the Dvorak trios are really hard, but they're great. Yeah. yeah. Like so, how many accidentals? Come on. So it's a good, it's a good challenge. And we just, it's a hundred percent for fun. I have no illusions that we'll ever get that up to any kind of performance level, but we have done two or three concerts. We did a house concert for our first one. Maybe it's only two concerts. No, we did two at the school. We also did a holiday one and a regular one. Anyway, so when we perform, we do a mix of a lot of its pop songs that we arrange. I arrange a lot of stuff that's been kind of a fun, newer musical venture for me is doing arrangements. So it'll be like Radiohead, Fleet Foxes. I did some Beck, some Zappa, Beatles. Juanita did some Beatles for us. And Galt's done some original tunes. We made we made a little uh, holiday EP with three originals and two covers. Uh, so we're pretty proud of that. And it's, it's just been really fun. It's just, it's, I really enjoy small ensemble work because everything matters. You can't hide. Well, that sounds wonderful. So we have a question that we like to ask all of our guests. It has to do with the conductor's baton. You know, we call the show no baton needed because, you know, some choir directors prefer a baton and some choir directors prefer just using their hands. Uh, if you're conducting a choir, which would you prefer to use, like using a baton or not? Or, you know, even as a singer, which would you prefer to perform under? As a singer, it would depend on the piece and the size of the group. I think of a baton as something that makes it easier to see what's happening. So if it's a larger group, a baton would probably be a necessity. As a rare and barely skilled conductor, I would probably go with my hands because I know what to do with those. I don't know that I'd know what to do with a baton. <laughs> and uh, Daniel, you... you tend to prefer more or less the same way, right? You know, a baton for a large ensemble. But I've used a baton with the Choral Project in rehearsals at times. I mean, there there's the general thing, if, if you have instruments or you want clearer articulation, things like that, something more rhythmic, use the baton. Larger group, use a baton. Hands, if you're trying to do something more expressive, if you're doing early music, uh, since the baton is really an invention, the modern baton is something sort of post-Mendelssohn, I mean, Mendelssohn and beyond. But... I find that sometimes rehearsing and changing in the rehearsal is really healthy for the ensemble because they look and respond a different way. It changes their expectation of the information that they're going to see. So it's, and I like them both equally. So Robin, we have a bit of a, a lightning round to okay. round out the, the episode. <laughs> it's the end right. of the day. My God, man. Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> we're working hard, but um, I just wanted to give you a bunch of questions. Well, not a bunch, like, you know, half a dozen. So, Robin, just quick, no thinking. What's your favorite yoga pose? Butterfly. Oh, that's hard to not think. 
I'll go, I'll go butterfly. Uh, what's your theme song? My theme song? Like if you walk in the room, what's playing? Oh, it depends on the day. Uh, it's your thing. Do what you want to do. All right. I'm into it. <laughs> if someone was playing you in a movie, who would it be? I've been told that I look like Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't know if that's a good answer or not. That's a pretty good answer. Uh, what was your first job? My first job. My first job. I'm an entrepreneur. I I don't know if this counts. I don't remember if I made money. I wanted to make stuffed uh, clothing for people, stuffed animals. This was in the sixth grade. <laughs> did you? Like, did, did you manage to sew some clothes? Like one or two, maybe. It was mostly in my head. So first, first real job actually was probably working for my mom doing data entry. She had a word processing company back when you hired people to do that sort of thing. Uh, what's your favorite book? Favorite book? It's all the hard ones. I'm a huge Stephen King fan. So almost any of those would do. Any in particular? Uh, I read a most the recent one, which is called uh, The Institution. What a page turner. And uh, finally, what's your favorite metal or precious stone or material to work with when you're making jewelry? Oh, silver. Silver's good. It's a staple. What makes it good? Uh, it can be really pretty when it's super shiny. It can be beautiful when it's matte. It's, it's easy to work with because it's familiar to me. So there's a, a comfort level there. And I just like the color, like my preference in wearing jewelry is always, always silver. So it's, it's kind of common, but it's still really pretty. Wonderful. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the interview. I want to thank both of you for taking the time to talk with the audience and me today about the foundation of the Coral Project and, and its beginnings. It was a really fascinating conversation, and I'm, I'm glad that I got to be a part of it. Thank you so much for having me. What a treat. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the No Baton Needed podcast. If you did, Please take a second to review and rate it on your preferred podcast streaming service. And if you really, really liked it and you're a super fan, please share your favorite episode on social media. Thanks for listening. See you next month. Until-